Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Today's Shut Up Evan is sponsored by Clone A Willy, the DIY molding kit that allows you to make an exact replica of your penis or any penis into a high quality, vibrating sex toy, all in the comfort of your own home. It's the most personalized sex toy on the planet, and it's all DIY. Dildo it yourself. You can also make a replica of your favorite vulva with the Clone A Pussy kits. That's right, Clone A Willy is for all genders. Each mold is 100% body safe materials, 100% platinum pure silicone, and available in nine colors, including glow in the dark. They are manufactured and shipped right here in the United States out of Portland, Oregon, and have been since the company was first formed in 1996. We love and support small businesses, especially ones that promote sexual liberation. Use promo code SHUTUPEVAN for 20% off at cloneawilly.com or find Clonawilly at your local sex toy shop. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up! Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just... Shut up, Evan. I didn't even say anything. Hi, good people. It's Evan Rosskatz, and you are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm joined once again by my friend and co-host Sean Ross. Sean, you were you were just asking me when this comes out, and I said, "LOL, it comes out tomorrow." Because I forgot that we do these up tops. I was like, "Oh, the interview's done. Mm-hmm. We've got the episode good to go." And then uh, Sophia, my fantastic producer, texted me, being like, "Do we have this week's up top?" And then I was like, "Oh yeah, that." And that is because I'm a bit out of the flow because we went on in 
unplanned hiatus because we had two episodes left in the season um, before the strike came into effect. And I obviously lost my final two guests. I was grateful to have Delta Work come on and fill in one of those slots. And it took me a beat to figure out a proper finale guest. And I finally found it. Uh, She's on our show today, the fabulous Jenna Lyons. But yeah, I... I'm really glad that we were at the tail end of the show because this is a show that relies on predominantly actors, many of whom are on strike. And unlike Drew Barrymore, I am uh, trying to honor the no scabbing rule, which means that actors uh, or any member of SAG-AFTRA at present, part of the stipulation is that they are not allowed to promote uh, any struck projects. And so that limits the accessibility to many actors. Yeah, see, I thought the timing of your finale episode was actually to coincide in solidarity with Drew Barrymore coming back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Did you see I really got dragged through it by accident? This happens sometimes to me, and I'm sure it happens to others, where I saw Drew Barrymore... The second I see a celebrity of Drew Barrymore's magnitude issuing, like, an Instagram post with lots of text, I'm immediately like, okay, like, what's going on here? And I love Drew, and I'm often aligned with Drew on anything that she says. So when I see Drew with text, intuitively I'm Mm double-clicking. I also understood the fact that Drew Barrymore had had walked out of uh, hosting the MTV Movie and Television Awards at the beginning of the strike in solidarity with the writer's strike. So I had every indication to think, oh, anything Drew Barrymore is going to say with regards to strike is going to be on the right side of history. Uh So stupid me, I'm on the subway platform on my way to Fashion Week. I double tap and I comment (laughs) in all caps, (laughs) queen. And then I go about my day only to come back and see countless comments being like, so you're supporting a scab, which makes you, Evan, a scab. So I then came to understand what I now know, and and I, I understand that I, I should do a little bit more due diligence before commenting Queen on someone's post, but I now understand that Drew Barrymore is returning uh, to uh, host her television show and basically working with outside writers, non-union writers, in order to keep the show going. It is outright scabbing. And so today, we're recording this on on Monday, September 11th. Today, the WGA East, the Writers Guild of America, their East Coast extension is going to be picketing outside of Drew Barrymore's show. Sean, like, what do you make of all of this? Well, it's wild. And I'm surprised that Drew Barrymore, of all people who I I imagine is a member of SAG-AFTRA, Uh, and has relationships with writers, is going to have to continue these relationships with her writers when the strike is inevitably over. And that's going to be weird and uncomfortable. Uh, I'm just surprised that this is the hill that she's willing to die on, it seems, at this time. So I don't know what to make of this, but it's an odd choice for true, of all people. Well, first of all, do you understand, like, how is The View going on right now? Well, The View is going on without writers. Okay. So I believe that the ladies are writing their own notes. Um, You see them referencing their notes a lot more than usual. I see. Which I don't really know what the point of that. I mean, like, they either have a teleprompter or they have the notes in front of them. Um, But they have made a point of saying continually, we don't have writers and therefore... This is what the show is right now. So I, I got to say, like, this is not a subject I'm, like, overly well-versed on. So, But on the one hand, sort of if I were to try and wrap my mind around Drew's intentions, 
I would imagine that it's like there are a lot of people that are employed by this show outside of the writers, from camera ops to to makeup to etc. And so in Drew's mind, she might be thinking, I have the show coming up. I want to continue to employ the dozens, if not hundreds of people under this show. And because this is not a scripted show, and you know, it's not sort of a standard show that relies as heavily on writers as scripted programming, and because so many other reality or talk shows are continuing to go on, she probably thought that this is the best possible move. Love Drew, um, but I did see people in the comment section of her post saying that her or someone, whoever runs her social, was going in and deleting comments uh, that were calling out this behavior of hers, which is like extra bad because it's sort of like, it's one thing if you don't fully know, but it's if you're deleting the comments, it means you know and you're actively trying to cover up the counter narrative, which is that this is bad. Yeah, it feels especially bad, the timing, because this strike is dragging out so long. And I understand the necessity for some of these shows to get on the air. And like, there's probably a lot of pressure from their networks, etc, their owners to get them on the air and to make advertising money. But by pushing through as the strike prolongs, it is demonstrating that, you know, this can be done without these essential writers and and talent. And that's undermining the strike, I think, in a much more significant way than Uh, any other action that you could take, I feel like. Right now, I feel like consumers have not been terribly affected by the strike in the sense of there's so much backlogged material that continues to come out. But there is going to come a point, and I think it will start in earnest in the fall, but really start to hit uh, in the winter when we will no longer have new programming, film or television. And I think people are really going to feel it. Well, I think we're both old enough to remember the last writer's strike in 2007, eight, I want to say. Yeah. And that was a dire time for television. That was a truly dire time. We were getting like midwinter Big Brother seasons. We were getting really weird reality shows that like were, it was bad news. And all of these great shows, I mean, there was like uh, suddenly a half a season of Lost, half a season of Desperate Housewives, half a season of you know these really, really great shows. And uh, it, it was a bad time. It was a bad time for TV. And I am not looking forward to reliving that. No, not at all. Um, which brings us to our conversation today, which is about one of the first victims of... Actually, see, that's not the way to frame it. I was going to say it was one of the victims of the strike, but I feel like by framing it that way, it, it's putting the pressure on the wrong bodies because mm-hmm. I'm not frustrated at the actors, I'm and I'm grateful for them for not scabbing and not promoting their film. I'm frustrated at a system that does not allow people to promote the work that they're doing because they are not fairly compensated. I just want to say that. And so that film is Red, White, and Royal Blue, which came out months, I think weeks, maybe months, plural, maybe month ago at this point. A month ago. But it feels so much in the rear view that I (laughs) was like, Sean, can we touch down on it? And I'm glad we are because I'm of the mindset where like, there are a few things, I mean, Barbie being like probably the best example that are able to like clinch the zeitgeist For a prolonged period. Mm -hmm. I feel like these days, especially, like you get these these moments where something is like entirely the conversation, and then it completely the floor falls out entirely and it's like done. Mm -hmm. And I think that something like Red, White, and Royal Blue 
deserves more of a postmortem because I feel like we had a two weeks when it was like we were dissecting every single thing. Mm-hmm. But I think that's why I like something like an end just like that, because we get plenty of time because it's a television series released weekly. We're able to sort of like have it be something that we conversate about and form new opinions about. So uh, so we'll get into Red, White, Royal Blue. Before we do, though, I do just want to mention, so this is the season four finale of Shut Up, Evan. Uh, Season five will begin in 2024, which means there will be several months with no new Shut Up, Evan podcasts. But I do just want to say, for those of you who have not migrated over to Shut Up, Evan, the newsletter, Mm. now is the time to do that. Um... It is a free newsletter released weekly um, for those craving. There is a paid version, which gives you access to a second, more juicy take every Thursday. But the Shut Up Evan newsletter, like the Shut Up Evan podcast, drops every Tuesday. I will continue to be doing interviews. We have done stories about things like Red, White, and Royal Blue, in which I interviewed the director, Matthew Lopez. So if you're saddened by the lack of Shut Up Evan the podcast over the next few months, I I cannot encourage you enough to jump over to the Shut Up Evan newsletter. And, and, and Sean and I will be picking up our Survivor recapping in just a few weeks' time with the beginning of Survivor season 45. So do be sure to jump over to our sister podcast, Drop Your Buffs. And you never know, Sean and I might find some other show that we decide to recap or touch down on as we did with The White Lotus and with And Just Like That. Yeah. And you want to talk about unfortunate consequences of the writer's strike? We've got 90-minute episodes of Survivor this season. So those recaps are going to be fun. I would say we have a similar relationship with uh, modern Survivor as as we do with And Just Like That, um, which is that, like, we are deeply enamored by this thing and we've got notes. And one of the craziest things is, like, the idea that this already sort of, like, wobbly show would add 30 minutes as, like, and and then sell it to us (laughs) as, like, a benefit is wild. But cut to us in a few weeks being, like, 90 minutes, save the show. I'm cautiously optimistic about it. I don't think you are. See, this is funny. You're saying you're cautiously optimistic. I think that I am cautiously optimistic. I feel like if anything... You are the opposite of optimistic. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Maybe... Okay, wait. More than... Okay, you're right, you're right, you're right. Neither of us are cautiously optimistic. I would say I am more neutral because I, I feel like you are entering the place that I entered into a while back because you used to be the cautiously optimistic one. And I feel like we are more on the same page. Yeah, we don't need to get too deep into this on Shut Up Evan, but I have I have gone on a roller coaster ride where when I first heard it, I was like, mm, this could be good. And then I really sat with it and I was like, no, actually, this is bad news for Survivor because they don't know how to handle the 45 minutes they have now, let alone an extra 20 or whatever without advertisements. But... Then I saw this interview with one of the executive producers and he was like, I I don't know whether to believe him, but he said it's going to feel more like old school Survivor because you're going to be getting more time for character moments. So that's what I come to Survivor for. That's what I crave. So I'm cautiously optimistic again. My flag to that would be like, (laughs) show me, don't tell me. It's like anytime someone comes on and it's like, we're going to give you more of the thing that you love. I'm kind of like, that is a worrying statement to me as opposed to just it being imbued into this show and then having us, the fans, be like, oh yeah, this is reminding me of old school. Yeah. 
Anyway, uh, <laughs> from Survivor to Red, White, and Royal Blue, I gotta say, I'm glad that we're talking about it now because I've had all this time to marinate on it. I've read all the things, listened to all the things, and I feel like now that it's sort of like out of the cultural conversation, I'm much more keen to talk about it. You know, I think about these shows like Bridgerton, which are like shows that I've never seen before, but I know have these like super loyal audiences. And watching Red, White, and Royal Blue, which I now understand has this huge fan base because it is based on this 2017 book that is like very, very beloved. And again, like, I'm new to smutty romance novels, but I know that they have a huge fan base, and this is a favorite among many fans of that genre. I dove into, like, a fandom that I didn't know about and, like, am very happy to be here, akin to what I felt when I first watched Survivor. Uh, I'm sure many people have this experience where it's like, you dive into a pre-existing thing that's beloved, and you're the new kid, and you're like, okay, like... I like my classmates here. Uh Whereas, like, you know, there's a lot of toxic fandoms that exist. I feel like the Red, White, and Royal Blue fandom, from everything I've seen, like, happy to be here, enjoying the ride. I legitimately think this is good. I don't, like, ironically like it. But I also do think there's an element of, like, this is very, it's like leaning into the tropes of uh, of a romance, uh, you know, of like, you're, you're, you're nodding hills, you're, you've got males, in a way that feels both like super referential and doing the thing, while also I think being a little subversive in some ways. I, I have to point out that one line that really stays with me when they're about to fuck for the first time, and Alex is like, I don't know if I'm the top or the bottom. <laughs> I think you might know by, by yeah. that age. But anyway, needless to say, then um, the prince says, don't worry, I went to boarding school. And the the basically alluding to the fact that, like, I went to boarding school, so, like, I know how to fucking power bottom. Which is a crazy line for so many reasons, because in... As you're saying, by that point, I don't even care about their age and that they would probably understand what their sort of like sexual preferences are by that age. But they are still figuring it out a little bit. But they have been flirting with each other for a course of like months and months and months and months. They've already fooled around. You're telling me they have never talked about this? But beyond that, so I'm to believe that a prince of England, of Great Britain, whatever we call that, the United Kingdom, is getting passed around a boarding school, sign me up. Adult, age-appropriate version. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. And you know what's funny? There has been so much discourse, and, like, I don't even want to give it too much wind, but there's been so much discourse about sort of, like, Gen Z and, like, the asexuality of Gen Z. And I know that I have watched Heartstopper, it's not for me, but I, under- I, I understand that it's for people. But one of the criticisms from a lot of, I think, the older audiences of Heartstopper is how treacly it is. It's sort of like, you know, I think all they do, from my understanding, is like kissing. And I do think there's a middle ground because then I think you kind of like mm. jump to your like euphorias and it's mm-hmm. like, you know, a, a fucking gangbang. I like that this movie fucks. Like literally, I think that's an important component of it that I think really makes it work. And I remember watching it, I I had assumed it was PG-13 when I was first watching it. And so at, you know, not just the sex scenes, because you get multiple sex scenes, oral and anal, but then you also get the the Mm -hmm. polo scene, which I think is the best uh, sex scene in the movie, and just the illusions present, the, the, the visual illusions. I was like, wow, this movie is like, 
it's casting a sight on like the male gaze in a way and the gay gaze I would even say um, that I don't see very often and I'm like really glad to see like I feel like this movie understood that both of its leads were really sexy and that like audiences would want to enjoy their sexiness which I now understand to be like a common part of the smutty romance novel I'm glad to see that aspect translated to film there's like I also understand that there are criticisms that are like, well, we could have gone further. And like, sure, of course. They're sort of stuck where they are because of the kind of movie it is, the genre it is. It is like firmly a rom-com. I think we could debate the calm aspect of that, but it is a rom-com. And so, and it is like glossy and made for the mainstream. I think if it goes further with the sex scenes, it starts to become a more serious film, right? And there's a reason that it's not lumped in with, the Brokeback Mountains and things like that because it's it's not that and it's not trying to be that and I think if the sex scenes get any raunchier than they are and they're very not they're very much not raunchy um, I think that it pushes it into a territory that is is outside of its genre and would feel really strange between this and then like Emma Seligman's Bottoms and then like there's the movie Passages and then there's that other new movie which I'm seeing All of Us Strangers which co-stars uh, Andrew Scott which I heard has great gay sex. This this is really good that you bring this up because I remember us we talked about this red, white, and royal blue a little bit on Drop Your Buffs and an aside. And we were talking about the sex scenes and um, sort of like how realistic they were in terms of portraying gay sex. And what's really interesting is that the guy who directed this, All of Us Strangers, one of his very first movies was called Weekend. It's a 2011 British film. It's sort of like a before sunrise where two guys meet at a gay bar and they spend the weekend together. That I have always held as the gold standard for depicting realistic gay sex. But like I said, this that is a film where they show come, right? And so like, that's not for this movie. That's not for Red, White, and Royal Blue. But it's like, there's somewhere in between. And I think Red, White, and Royal Blue is is sort of like standing on that line. I completely, completely agree. But anyway, I think that with All of Us Strangers, with Passages, with Bottoms, and with Red, White, and Royal Blue, there's certainly a conversation to be had about the present state of gay sex and the depiction of gay sex in cinema and in, in I think, an exciting way, um, and especially in contrast to things like Heartstopper or Young Royals. I'm also thinking, too, do you know that show Elite? No. It's a Spanish soap opera on Netflix with Manu Rios um, and Omar Ayusa. And uh, if you want to see gay sex in all its forms uh, look no farther than Elite, which I think is about high school students. This is always the tricky thing. That's why I gotta say, I appreciate this film for, it's my understanding, and I could be wrong, that they age, they're aged up from the book for the movie. I'm talking about uh, Red, mm. White, and Royal Blue. And I think that was a smart choice because I think it makes everything a little bit more palatable from the perspective of not having... Uh, audiences lusting over what are believed to be teens, even if they are played by adults. Yeah. I'm always, always, always reminded of Clueless and just how much we were supposed to accept the fact that, like, Cher was falling in love with her stepbrother, who was an adult, who was falling in love with 
her, who's his stepsister and a high school student. And we were just supposed to be like, oh, yeah, this is so sweet and cute. Um, it's troubling and alarming. Yeah. Um, so I, I sort of like the fact that this felt very like, okay, we're allowed to enjoy the missionary. Yeah. And it's nice sometimes to have that. This is not a coming out movie, but there are coming out scenes in the movie. And so often I think that you're conditioned to, especially with a glossy sort of movie like this, that that it is typically a coming-of-age film, and this is not a coming-of-age film. It's not even, like, one of those things of, like, oh, I'll still love you. It's subverted even further to say, like, okay, but we need to get you on prep, which I love because it's not only, like, <laughs> are you having sex, but she. it's, like, it goes a step further. It's not only, like, we need to get you condoms. It's, like, we need to get you condoms or prep. Like, she's a president who knows her constituents. Mm-hmm. Like, I mm-hmm. can really appreciate that. Now... One thing I think is really interesting about a film like this is that it was released video on demand, which I think, especially because of the timing with the strike, it did a great service to this film having it be on demand because I think, and I started to feel this too, where again, I knew nothing about it. I started to see some people talking about it online, which piqued my curiosity, and I was able to just log on to Amazon, watch, and become a part of the discourse in a way that Bottoms, for instance, which is exclusively in cinemas right now, which I love and appreciate, go see Bottoms, support queer cinema, support female filmmakers. But right now there is a barrier to entry because especially in the opening weekends, Bottoms was only playing in select cities. Mm -hmm. And so you could want to support queer cinema. You could want to support women directors. You could want to support Rachel Sennett, A.O. Edebiri, et cetera, and be blocked from being able to do so. So I think there was a, I, I appreciated the accessibility of Red, White, and Royal Blue. And I think that helped bolster it in the conversation because this was a film that was entirely reliant on word of mouth because the actors themselves could not promote it. I loved this movie, but I also... It's like, it's funny. I feel the need to say but, but I don't know if I have a but. I really, like, I want a sequel. Yeah, well, this is what I have to ask you, because, like, I thought this was a fine movie. It was okay. I, I rewatched it, because I knew we'd be talking about it again. Did I need to rewatch it? No. But I have to ask you, because you were effusively uh, supportive of this movie. You really loved it. You said, run it, it's Oscars, in your newsletter. And I want to know, a month later, do you feel the same way? That's interesting. So I, too, did rewatch it and prep for today. I still am on that path. I mean, like, obviously, like, yes, there is a hyperbole in me in general when I first Mm -hmm. love a thing. I often, like, I don't just love the thing. (laughs) Like, I love it and, like... (laughs) I'm willing to cross the picket line for it. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but um, but I really, really did like it. I still, yeah, I mean, I have to say, I found it, first of all, I gotta say, I found it very rewatchable, especially a lot of dialogue that I didn't catch the first time that, to your comment earlier about, like, a rom-com that's more rom than com, I actually feel like this movie is way more calm really? than I usually get from a rom-com. I have to say, I didn't laugh. You didn't laugh? No. What about the scene when the president's, uh, like, aide or whomever, um, when We're she- talking about Zara, the press secretary? Yes, I apologize for not remembering her name. I felt like when, when Zara, when she shows up to the hotel and the prince is hiding in the uh-huh. closet, I thought that was giving me Academy Award winner Sarah Sashi. Shahi? Shahi, excuse me. Okay, well, this is the thing about that character for me. It's like, I understand that she is the comedy in the movie- But for me, that character seemed like she wandered off this bizarro set of Veep down the hall 
that was filming in the White House. And the dialogue was so reaching towards Veep, but not quite getting there for me, that I was like, first of all, the character seems out of place with all the other characters, because it it really does feel like it's coming from a different universe. And I just didn't think that the universe that it was reaching for was being grabbed onto. So Mm. it it took me out of the film a little bit, actually, that character. Then there's everything with Uma Thurman, which I feel like is also a very different tone. And it's funny. She's giving the her best version of like the West Wing, but Alex Mm -hmm. is giving you something more akin to like uh party of five. Yeah, it's definitely there's (laughs) there's a mashup happening here. Mm But I don't feel like the Sarah Shahi stuff is incongruous because there are so there's so much tonal imbalance that I think it creates its own unique tone. It's a mosaic. It's a mosaic. Okay. <laughs> For certain. <laughs> In my mind, there was a version of this film that could have been so much more watered down, could have had more studio notes. And that's not to say maybe there was an even way more queerer version of this film. But I just feel like for this to be the final output, I like the fact that it was sappy and cute and sweet, but also sexy and that they fuck and that like we had like the supportive mom beat and we had like the fun friend um I felt like it did a lot with what it had. I guess my question, do you feel like this could have potentially been better serviced as a television series? No, I'm glad you asked that. I would hate this. I wouldn't watch it as a television series. I think that there are maybe too many television series adapted from books. I don't need to see this dragged out. I know that there are fans of the book. I've seen some talk. I've I've not read the book, but I've seen some chatter about everything that was left out, like a lesbian sister character uh, to Alex, um, and that there was, uh, you know, much more in their sort of like understanding of their relationship in the context of history and things like that. But like, I don't need that from this. Like, this was a... Sunday night, easy watch. I don't want to watch it every Sunday. Mm -hmm. So we're eliminating the series. Say we're doing the sequel, okay? Sure. There's several ways you can go. So there's like the end, just like that route, which is that we're doing the second one and we're breaking them up and like starting a new, which would mean oh. if we're directly with and just like that, one of them dies. Um, but if we're just like, and just like that light, the idea is that like, we are dissolving this relationship in order to see the possibilities for these characters when they're not together. So like, that's oh. one option because this really is Alex's story more than it is Henry's, despite the fact uh-huh. that like, we, uh-huh. you know, it just, Alex feels like the lead. So there's a world in which it's like, Henry's out of the picture entirely. Um, There's also the possibility of, like, a cheating plot. Again, Uh this all feels like we're digging into, like, the Sex and the City well here. There's the possibility of cheating. There's the possibility of, like, opening up the relationship and seeing what that does and then having that sort of... And then maybe one of them starts to develop feelings for, you know, (laughs) one of the other guys. There's also, obviously, the possibility of Alex running for some kind of office, which I feel like we mm. were like were we were beginning that that journey for Alex in this film as he was campaigning hard for his mother's reelection to the Senate in Texas. Okay, so all this to say it's like so say you're we're in the writer's room, the strike mm-hmm. is over. The strike is over. We're in the writer's room. We've reached a deal with the AMPTP. We're in the writer's room. Where where do you want to see us go with Red, White and Royal Blue too? I base it off of the relationship of Charles and Diana. Alex has come in. 
they are living in England. Alex has to give up his political ambitions in the U.S. You can't, like, be a part of the royal family and also the president of the United States. That is just not going to work. Like, there's history here. And I appreciate, like, the cartoonification of that in in the first uh, installment. But we're in the second installment. We're taking a realist view on this. Alex has moved to Kensington Palace. He becomes beloved by the public far more than Henry. Henry's older brother, he's out. Something terrible has happened to him. And now Henry is the heir to the throne. And he's being overshadowed by Alex. There's some resentment, maybe a little cheating. There's like a press frenzy. It sort of breaks them apart. There's rumors and lies in the press. That's the movie I want to see. And it doesn't have to have the same ending as the Charles and Diana story, but I think there's something there. If we're going with this plot, do, do they end up together? Well, I mean, yeah, it's a romantic comedy film, so they, they kind of have to end up together. I could be I could be here for it. Do you think we're getting a sequel? I mean, I have to think that, like, what is the metric of success on something like this? Because this is why I get so confused with the world we live in today. Even if 20 million people watch it versus 10 million people watch it, there's no ads on this film, it's like, so if you're already paying for Amazon Prime, which is how you get access to this, it shouldn't really matter for, from like a bottom line perspective, whether you watch this or not, they're collecting their coin either way. So this feels ultimately sort of like more of a brand play. I don't, I've never quite understood how this works. And I think they just base it off statistics. I don't think they're like counting members who are coming to watch this. And I can't imagine there's that many that it makes any significant difference in their overall like uh, subscription base. So I don't really understand, but I mean, this was their biggest movie, right, at the time. That's uh, got many, many millions of viewers. So I think the possibility for a sequel is certainly on the table. The problem I think that this has as like a, as a concept is that we have two people who are, and I know that Alex's background is not elite, but at the time that this film starts, he is an elite. He is the president's son. And so I think it's missing that sort of like power uh, imbalance that you have from, say, a Notting Hill, where it's Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant, who's just you know, Julia Roberts, who's the biggest superstar in the world, and Hugh Grant, who's a bookshop owner, and sort of like fumbling through that world, or like a Princess Diaries, right? Like the reason Princess Diaries two works, if it does work, is that Anne Hathaway's character is still trying to figure out how to exist in this world. Where like, yeah, Alex is like maybe a little bit of a bad boy in politics or something, but like he's not having to like fumble his way through this world of elites yeah no you're right let's end with this in terms of hunkiness yeah who is hotter nicholas galadzine i think is how you say his name or taylor zacher perez well taylor is the moment taylor's the moment those eyes are just like they, they draw you in I feel like they had, like, terrific chemistry. And some of the reviews I read, there were a lot of, like, strangely mean-spirited reviews, I felt, that were really criticizing their acting, which, like, I don't know. I, I really thought they were both great in this, but I thought in particular, I thought they had so much chemistry together. They did that. <laughs> they did. <laughs> they did it missionary. They did it missionary, yeah. They really did. Not everybody can do that. No. And a lot of people learn. I, I, there was a huge discourse on Twitter about... Many heterosexuals not knowing that gays can do missionary. But I also sort of wonder, it's like, are how often are heterosexual people considering 
the like, the mechanics of gay sex. I think it might have just been a more of like a I never thought about that than like I then an I didn't know that that was possible. I think that's the vast minority of people. Yeah, they're awakened now. Um. All right. Well, we're gonna throw it over to the interview with Jenna now. But Sean. Quick postmortem, end of season four of Shut Up Evan. Um, any final words? Oh my words? gosh. <laughs> Am I coming back next season? You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I love about Shut Up Evan? All of these things I would never expose myself to. And you, you push me out of the nest and you say, like, go watch, and just like that, for example, go watch Sex in the City, episode one. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And now look at me now. I'm one of the preeminent commentators. On it, just like that. I feel like for the most part, you end up deriving some enjoyment from the things that that we watch. Oh, sure. Because I feel like you and I share this, this trait, which is that like, and again, this extends to Survivor too, even when we don't like Survivor, which is that like, as long as something is like there's a conversation around something I can find a way in I seek out fan communities well because if there's a community then there's something to talk about there's a conversation going on and if there's one thing you love it's a conversation I love a conversation unless it's about the idol I would say the idol was the one like that was an example of like not a jumping the shark but for me I was like I this discourse is so Discorious. Uh. Um, that's a word I'm coining right now. Like, I just was like, I can't dive in. Do you ever just see stuff? This happens to me a lot, like, lately, where I'm like, I see a discourse brewing about something. I mean, a great example being, like, the sex, uh, the asexuality of Gen Z. Like, I'm like, I don't want to dignify this by, yeah. like, having an opinion. Yeah. It's like, the, it's like the one that's going on right now is, like, which songs has Olivia Rodrigo plagiarized this time? And I'm like, I'm not jumping into that. You're not going to bait me. It's funny that I saw someone, because she has a line in one of the songs where she says, like, all the men I love are gay. And someone resurfaced, like, a 2020 tweet of hers being like, I love Anderson Cooper. He's so hot. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, the writing was on the wall. The writing was on the wall. Anyway, Sean, thank you for being back for another season. Again, just shouting out the fact that our co-hosting duties continue over on drop your buffs and without any further ado i'm super excited we taped this a while back and we were holding it and now it's here i've obviously known about her for decades um but i'm super excited for you all to see because for a number of people who are meeting jenna lyons on the real housewives there is a whole jenna lyons that existed before this show and will exist afterwards and i am proud of the fact that i got to do this interview where like Obviously, we touch on Housewives, but we really get to learn more about the real Jenna um, that has not made its way onto the show just yet. Without further, that was some ado, but without any further ado, uh, the great, the powerful Jenna Lyons. Shut up, Evan! Oh, I love wedding planning. Oh yeah, we're um we're currently figuring out the florals. We landed the date. What's the date? For 2024. Palindrome. So now we're like starting to put everything into motion. Nine months feels like we've got a runway. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I was like, we can either do it in nine months and like have to get everything done quickly and like not stress about it as much. Or we could have like two years and then spend two years stressing. about it. If you're going to do it, just do it. You know, I say right now, like I'm not going to become wedding brained. I'm curious to see like how much I can stay true to that. I just don't want it to become my personality. For sure. Okay, so... The number one thing that I want to talk about, because this became the moment I saw it on the show, I was like, this is a, this is born to be a meme. 
Quote, you can't have Alexander Wang on your back and Balenciaga on your bag. Um, no truer words have ever been spoken. Because when I think of you, I don't think of you as the kind of person who's critical of the things that people wear. And I don't receive that moment as you criticizing so much as you doing her a service. That's the way I see it. Which I appreciate because it really was. I knew that there were cameras on us and I knew that she had literally, I mean, what you cannot see is that the Alexander Wang on her back is literally four inches, four inches in height and goes across the entire back of her jacket. And then what you also can't see is the fact that her bag in very huge black letters has Balenciaga on it. And it's just like, it felt overkill. And I thought, we don't need this. Help me help you. I'm I'm here for you. Yeah. I mean, the irony of it being two canceled brands showing up, oh. I mean, is, is not lost on me. I mean, me. that is, you know, honestly, like that just adds <laughs> insult to injury. Truly. So you're a few weeks into this show airing. Yeah. You made it months and months ago. I imagine it's a very different feeling once it's out there because you make something, you don't know how it's going to be received. You don't know what the other women are saying behind your back. You don't know which footage they're going to use, what they're going to scrap, what context is going to be given to a moment. And here it is now. So several weeks in, or I should say several months in by the time this comes out, how are you feeling about the show being out in the world? At my previous job, everything I did, I would work on a season and then I would go on to the next. And by the time the season that was in the store, I, it was a year ago. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I had so moved on. And I think I'm sort of in the same place. Like, I'm just not really thinking about it that much. Yes, my I get a lot of DMs and it's lovely, but like I'm on to other things. <laughs> and, you know, I was a little bit afraid, of course, of how I would be portrayed. But I was able to see the first three episodes prior to the launch of the show. And once I saw the first three, I kind of understood what the positioning was going to be. And I was like, okay, good. You've been on television before. Are you able to watch yourself comfortably? I don't really want to watch. It's much more fun watching with friends um, just because they can make fun of me and laugh at me, which feels good because obviously if you can't laugh at yourself, like you're in trouble. And it's also interesting to see their reactions to the other girls because, you know, I have my own opinion, but I know everything that happened. Whereas the viewers, my friends, they're just authentic viewers, and it's really fun to watch their reactions. And we've had many reactions. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I am not trying to stir the pot here, but... Okay. Yeah. (laughs) On Bethany Frankel's podcast, she revealed that you'd reached out to her seeking advice about Housewives and that she rejected your ask. She said she never heard of you and that the show is setting it up like you are Lady Gaga joining the cast. So it felt to me like Jenna Lyons... First of all, she's an accomplished woman. I had sort of heard of her. I never really, I didn't really hear of her until the person who I know said to me, do you want to talk to her? She's going to be on the show. I've heard of J. Crew, obviously. And it sounds like it was a really big job, but the show is setting it up. Like Lady Gaga has joined the cast of Alex Simon and Ramona. And, you know, it's like, okay. So everybody's like, she's on this like weird different pedestal. And I feel that that's interesting. Not her fault. Well, when you did reach out to her, I think it sounds like you were kind of doing your due diligence by being like, I'm entering into this new experience. You are the maestro of this art form, if you will. What was the rejection? Was that a rejection? What was that? I can imagine if she was on the other foot. You know, I think that she has been through this, you know, process for years. And I think it's had its ups and downs. And clearly, as we can see now with what's going on, she has a tricky relationship with the show. And so... 
you know, she may not have wanted to play favorites. She may just not have wanted to discuss it for reasons that are her own. I, I'm fine that she had no idea who I was. Like, great. There's so many people who don't. It happens all the time. <laughs> I was going to say, everything I know about you is like indicating to me that like, you're not one to be listening to like a Housewives recap podcast. Are we? <laughs> <laughs> but I also think, I think there's a danger of it becoming my whole life. I think what was interesting was Andy texted me after the show had launched. He said, how does it feel to be a housewife? And I was like, well, I'm actually not a housewife. I'm Jenna Lyons. I am on a show called The Real Housewives. Like, I don't think, I don't want it to become my defining moment. And it's tricky because I had a career prior to this and a relatively large one. And I don't want this to become my calling card. At the same time, I'm become well aware that it is a very large, very visible and like very passionate mm. show. I can't believe how people are obsessed. They are obsessed. And one of the interesting things about you and your career is like, you're someone who's been profiled so much. You've had so many instances of someone coming into your home or are you going and meeting someone and them talking to you, but essentially treating you like an anthropological study that they're doing, you know, as is the nature of someone in your position. And so now that's sort of happening again, wherever you're getting these profiles written about you the the reason why they're happening is housewives, but often there are opportunities for people to really dig into your whole life. And I'm wondering what that's like for you. For instance, the J. Crew conversations, I imagine, are coming up quite frequently in a way that maybe they weren't two or three years ago. It felt yeah. more in the rear view. I would much rather talk about my life in its entirety than focus only on this moment in time. The fact of the matter is I, I had a strategic reason for doing this, as everyone does. And if anyone says they don't, they're no one goes on to this for their health and for fun like you just don't and everyone has a reason my reason was to support my current business at the same time like there is context i think if you don't know who i am i would much rather you know that i didn't just like poop out of midair i have a life i have history and i'm i'm happy to share that do i want to move on from my past of course i think that has been probably one of the hardest things for me is separating myself from you know, J. Crew. I mean, it's one of the reasons I think I didn't find another job afterwards mm. is because I think I was too connected to the brand. Mm. More on that in a bit, but one of the jobs that you did find after J. Crew was a guest appearance on Girls. Um, oh, no, that was during. That was during? That was during. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, that was a long time ago. Okay, so you have this three episode arc on the series. You play Hannah's boss. I believe it was GQ, right? She was working at GQ. Hey, Janice, do you have a minute? Oh, sure, Hannah, come on in. Have a seat. Thank you. You know, you've been doing a great job. Oh, uh, thank you. You remind me a lot of myself ten years ago. Uh, thank you. Um, speaking of which, uh, I don't want to be here in ten years. Why not? I don't know. I'm just realizing how easy it is to get seduced by, like, the perks and the money and the free snacks, and then suddenly I wake up in ten years and I'm not a writer anymore. I'm a former writer who works in corporate advertising, and that is not my plan. All right, Hannah. There's a lot of other people who would love to have your job. That's it? That's it. So you're at GQ, you have a three-episode arc. What's interesting is, I had Greta Lee on this podcast recently, who also was on Girls. I asked her what she thinks became of her character, Sujin. After you fire Hannah, we don't see your character again. I believe her name, Janice? Okay. We don't see Janice again. What do you think Janice would be doing today? (laughs) I mean, from where it seemed to be going, Janice wasn't doing so well. She seemed to be not really caring for her team. Yeah. She was very sure, like she was very terse. And it was funny because Lena kept asking me to be more mean. And I was like, damn, <laughs> it's not so easy. <laughs> and she wanted me to yell at her. And then she like made fun of me because I couldn't yell at her. I like literally didn't grow up in a household where there was yelling. So I'm 
I'm not that good at it. And uh, I think Janice is probably, like, I think retired and lonely. <laughs> it was a good arc on the show, though. I loved seeing you. I loved there. her. Now, I want to talk about your home, not the home we're in today, although it is gorgeous, but I want to talk about your home in the city, which was featured not only on the season premiere of The Real Housewives of New York, but was recently featured on Vogue. I have to say, Jenna, I loved watching that video because oftentimes, and, and I believe it was called, they focus on objects of your affection, Right. And I love the way that you were able to speak about the significance of these things as they relate to you and your love for them. It was one of those things that reminded me of what I think it is that attracts so many people to you, which is the way you're able to speak about the things that interest you, that creates an interest from those who might have been like, I've never even heard of that thing. But the way Jenna speaks about it, I'm like, I want to know more. So I love that video so much. And one of the things that you said about your apartment, as you said, it was the first time in your life that you got to do something that was exactly the way you wanted it to be you you get the place you walk in for the first time it's yours you have this not empty palette but a palette with which you can do what you want what was that feeling like you have to understand like what i had done for so many years was it was it became almost like an archetype of someone else i was at jake for a long time but it wasn't just all of me and there was this whole part of my life that i wanted to you know i I was obsessed with things that were marble and brass and all these things. It really didn't fit the mold of what I was doing. And interesting enough, I remember when I finished my apartment, um, you know, Vogue had wanted to shoot it. And our business was a little bit tough at the time. And everyone internally said, we can't have, like, we don't want you out in the world with that, with the image of that home. It's too luxe. And it was funny mm-hmm. because, you know, I understand, like, J. Crew had this image of being very humble and very pared down and like, you know, the house in Maine clad in like shingles and that kind of thing. And here I had this sort of relatively opulent apartment. I hadn't really had that. You know, I was always working under the construct of this brand, of this other idea that wasn't necessarily completely mine. Your Closet, Mm. which was featured in the Vogue video, also famously now featured on the premiere episode when two of the women go into your closet and begin trying on some of your clothes. And you were remarkably chill about that. I might not have been, but I I respect your (laughs) your reaction. I I have gained and lost so many clothes over the years that, like, I can't. It's like, mm, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. That closet, it was a feast of the eyes, to say the least. Are these things that you've accumulated over 26 years, how... How would you sort of articulate yourself as a shopper? Imagine, you know, somebody who is obsessed with baseball and they may have every card and they know every stat. And it was my life. I loved collecting things. Some of it I bought. Some of it were things I wore to events. Some of things were, you know, things we created that we never actually made. It was a whole host of things, but they have meaning to me and they have memories. And, you know, whether it be the Met Ball or you know, going to the White House or things that were really prominent experiences in my life. But like, I'm not prepared to let go of those things. I also love looking at them. They're beautiful. I like looking at my shoe closet. I don't wear half those shoes anymore, but I still like them. As much as they are shoes, they are also art objects. Yes, they're pretty. Did you have any concern or thought around welcoming the cameras? Less for Vogue, because you know it's going to how it's going to be depicted, but on a reality show, you don't sort of know the way in which your home's going to be created. And and this is a show that as much as it is about Real Housewives, it is about People love the homes of housewives. It is a huge point of interest. I did not realize. Yes. I had done a, a show previously called Stylish with Jenna Lange, which was on HBO. And I was an executive producer and there. The team that was filming it was incredible. So I had seen how a house gets lit and how a house gets lit beautifully. And when the Bravo team came in, they lit up my house like a Christmas tree. And I was like, holy shit. 
every scene is and i keep saying can we dim it down does it yeah. have to be quite so overly lit and they're like well we want you to look good i'm like there has to be a way to make me look good without me but i realized that the show that i'd done before they weren't capturing us in reality it was a little bit of a it wasn't it wasn't and we were very you know we had sort of places where they didn't want us to move around too much and honestly it's the lighting is hard. <laughs> it's really hard. There's one scene of me in the bedroom, and I look looking at my bathroom, and it's you could have like a gynecological exam in there. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> so, like I said before, there's all these profiles about you. One thing that I discovered through reading all of these in preparation was there's not a ton about how you found your way into fashion. I read that it was seventh grade, I believe, that you first got the sewing machine and learned how to sew. But I'd love to know sort of like the surrounding events that even had you desiring to do something like that. I have a genetic disorder. And when I was young, I had really funicular teeth, meaning they were shaped like cones. I have huge bald spots in the back of my head that have since been closed up. They're, they're still there, but they were very large when I was young. I have scars that are they're quite visible. Uh, and I was teased pretty like relentlessly when I was a kid. And so I didn't have any connection to feeling pretty or attractive. And I certainly never got any attention from boys or any of that stuff. And so when I took this home economics class and started making clothes for myself, it was the first time I had positive feedback because I was very tall and skinny, but also I couldn't go and buy like a tall, skinny pair of jeans. I was in the big girl section thinking that I was really big until I measured myself for a skirt and measured myself with length and wore it to school. And the girl, Dara Darlene Patterson, who sat next to me in social studies, like sent me a note in social studies and was like, I like your skirt. Where'd you get it? And I wrote back and I said, I made it. And she said, will you make me one? And I was like, wait, what? And I all of a sudden realized that like, I could feel good about something that I made. It could make me feel good. And if I could, if it could make me feel this good and then someone would want to buy it, like something clicked in there. And then I started taking sewing classes. My grandmother gave me a sewing machine and a subscription to Vogue. My mom put me in art classes and I just kind of, I held on to that so tightly because it was the only, it was like my only hope of getting out of like this box that I was in. I remember seeing Issey Miyake gracing the pages of Vogue and Issey Miyake, like big black stripes over their eyes with these huge cloth clothes. And it wasn't necessarily anything I would want to wear, but what I loved was that it didn't look like the Baywatch beauties that yeah. I was seeing. I, it, I started to understand that beauty could look different than what I was seeing and what I was told was the only way. And I was like, wait a minute. When did you start to understand like that there is a fashion industry? Cause oh. I feel like that's a whole separate part of, I know even for myself, it's like I fell in love with fashion and then there's the industry, which I fall in and out of love with. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't understand how deep it ran, but I went to Parsons and I was an intern at Donna Karen and I got a, went, going to Parsons this was before project one way, obviously. So I had a real insight into, you know, I remember going to shows and dressing fashion shows for Calvin Klein and dressing Cordula and, you know, Tatiana Patitz and Iman. And I mean, you know, these are like the early supermodel days and watching Carla Bruni, like drop her clothes and like pick up a slip and walk across the room. And I was like, <laughs> like what just happened? Here I am in sweatpants. I've like literally been eating nothing but ice cream and rice and beans. And I'm look I was like, wow, I'm a hobbit. <laughs> What's the point? She was just so beautiful. And I like got to see the behind the scenes, but that didn't connect to the industry, you know, the inner workings of the stylists and the makeup artists and like sort of the mafia that existed behind it. I had no sense mm. of it. I didn't really get to know it until much later. So when you first started at your crew, you had mentioned in several interviews that you were sort of an assistant to an assistant to an assistant. Obviously, the fashion industry is very different today, but I think so many times people want to know 
how does someone who's super successful get to where they got? And I think you have a particularly interesting origin in really starting from the bottom and working your way up. To zoom in on that, not I, I don't even like the articulation of it being the bottom, but starting at the entry level. The thing that is so hard is this culture now of influencers. There is this idea that anyone and everyone can get there quickly. And the fact of the matter is it's a little bit like a lottery. Yes, yes, there are a lot of people that are doing very well and they can be successful. But the fact of the matter is there's no exchange for hard work. Like I also like have a ton of experience. You know, I was talking to someone yesterday and they were like, oh, well, linen and cotton are the same thing. I'm like, they're actually not the same thing. And they're like, well, aren't they, they come from cotton? I'm like, no, 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 linen comes from flax. It's like a hemp product, but it's basically a flax-based product. Cotton comes, you know, and I realized like I have this, wealth of knowledge i understand i could touch a fabric and know exactly what it's made out of and know the, the weave and and i can i can go through blind my closet and know exactly what pants are that you know i have this a ton of experience understanding fit and tailoring and and i've i'm really proud of that um i i think a lot of people who are in the clothing industry that don't know anything about clothes truly know about clothes the history of clothes who was jean lanvin where did she come from how did she get there who was carl lagerfeld how did he get there what was his rise how did he relate to christian dior who what is the legacy of the fashion industry and i think that's really fascinating to me and it's important a lot of people don't have that and so i think it's hard when you can see somebody get really successful without putting in the time and i'm thrilled don't get me wrong you can still get there if you just do the work it's really fun having the background and the information. I, I feel really proud of that. And there's such a rich history to, I mean, and this is like, there's the American aspect of fashion. Of course, there's Definitely. Europe and then the influences that European fashion has. And then also like, there's even down from there, there's like New York and the New York fashion scene, but how that differs from the LA fashion scene. Or you and I were even chatting about the fact that like East Hampton is becoming its own Rodeo Drive. And like, I would say if the continuum is for better or for worse, it's definitely on the for worse side, but it is a reality that there are all of these bubbles within the, the way in which the fashion industry affects people in different regions and wealth and economics. And... Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a whole, there's a deep dive in there for sure. <laughs> it is fascinating to me. And I think like there's this idea, I remember everybody sort of put fashion aside in a lot of ways, but it's actually really powerful. And I, I only know that from experience. Like, I remember writing, some woman wrote me a letter and she said, you know, I was having a really hard time. I had to give a speech. I'm a doctor. I was giving a speech to a very large group. It was primarily men. And I was very nervous. I went to J. Crew. I got a, an outfit and I walked up on that podium. And on my way up, three people said, you look fantastic. And she said, mm -hmm. when I got up there, just knowing that I felt good in my body allowed me to step away from that and actually focus on what I had to do, which was give my speech. And I do think like there's this discount of sometimes that it's shallow or it is not necessarily important. But the fact of the matter is it can really change the way you feel. You know, you mentioned uh, working for Donna Karen, and I look at the fashion industry today, and there are so many greats of that era. I mean, Isaac Mizrahi comes to mind, Todd Oldham comes to mind, Zach Posen comes to mind, these giants of the industry at that time, who by choice in some instances and by circumstance in others, are no longer prominent faces in the world of fashion. And it shocks me, especially with Isaac, who I've been blessed to have on this podcast and who I love dearly. I can't believe we live in a world in which Isaac Mizrahi is not a household name in which people are not walking around wearing Isaac Mizrahi, and yet that is a, a major shift in the industry. As someone who's around in this heyday, does it surprise you at all to see who has not made the leap to present day? For sure, and I think it's almost like... If I mentioned that we are recording outside of Jenna's home in Amagansett, so whatever, uh, <laughs> whatever <laughs> noises you hear. This, this is an advertisement for beer. Yeah, um, I think... If you look at 
the really big bastions, the ones who have stayed the same power, like Ralph Lauren, Calvin Klein, Michael Kors, all of them have extended into mass. If you are going to stay, if you are going to really have that same power and your name is going to become a household name, that requires you to go into mass market. Mark Jacobs, he has done it, but he's a, he stayed up here, but he's not as much of a household name as Michael Kors, Calvin Klein, and Ralph Lauren. Donna Karen did, I think, with DKNY. Again, you have to go cheaper. There's America can't afford these. I mean, I remember right. when I started working at Donna Karen, one of the reasons I didn't end up staying there was because the clothes were so expensive and no one I knew could wear them. And I loved them. But like jackets back then in 1990 were $2,000. In 1990. I, that to me was like literally like six months rent. Mm. You know, I w- couldn't even imagine. <laughs> and so if you don't actually go down that route, it's really hard, you know, unless you have an accessories or makeup line. I mean, Tom Ford is one of those people who I think he's got a laser-like understanding of how to navigate the business and the industry. Outside of accessories and cologne and perfume and makeup, making clothes is not an easy business. No, and, and often not a profitable one. It's interesting, when Isaac was on Watch What Happens Live recently, Andy asked him, he was like, you know, you had this wildly successful line with Target, why did we not see more of that, you know? And Isaac was blunt in stating they didn't call back. And it's shocking to hear something like that because you think about Isaac's popularization of a brand like Target. Isaac attaching his name helped legitimize that Target line. It's I don't understand in instances like that when it's suddenly made affordable. This day and age, people just want the new. Right. Nobody's interested in, I mean, if you think about Target and H&M and all these brands that do collaborations that people are like okay one and done i mean they're every brand i know has done them and i don't think any of them really go back it's shocking to me especially when i had isaac on here and i compared it to isaac Mizrahi is as interesting a human being as he is a designer and i think that those things go hand in hand mark jacobs similarly and what i um and again i don't want to speak in like too, you know, uh, vaguely, but it's like, I think a lot of these young designers that I see, I'm not compelled uh, by them as people. And I think that the designers that I often find myself attaching to being obsessed with the most, I'm interested in their worldview and their sense of humor. I think that's part of what I was talking about. It's like, it took a lot more to be a designer mm. when we were coming up. You had to, it was about this insatiable curiosity and knowing everything about design, not yes. just fashion. But I do have hope in the sense of, like, I look at the fandom around Phoebe Philo and how much people are clamoring for this collection. That. And that makes me excited about the fact that there's an audience of people who understand her and, like, are Yeah, but I, I think that those are, are, like, those are people I would say, I'm imagining probably more like me, who are, you know, devotees and who literally, like, spent a king's ransom <laughs> on her first 10 collections. I get it. I'm like, I can't even. I have a separate credit card waiting. (laughs) So you had to deal with a very different media, particularly like the gossip media that existed during your time at J. Crew. I remember, I think it was a 2011 catalog in which it was a J. Crew catalog and you painted your son's nails. Yes. And I, first of all, that was very important to me at the time. I remember that it was as though you'd given him a gun. And I'm wondering what it was like, especially in looking back at those moments now of these these times where something that you did, something so innocuous, was seen as completely ludicrous. I mean, it's interesting because we're having this conversation when Florida has telling kids you can't say gay. I mean, the fact that we have come nowhere, we're actually going backwards. Right. It's shocking to me. I was shocked at the time. I could not believe. First of all, they said that my child was t- 10 years old. At the time, he was four. And any parent, male or female 
who has a child knows that little girls and little boys want to do oftentimes what their parents are doing. I painted my toenails and my son was like, wow, that's cool. I want to do that. His perspective was, I just wanted, it was innocuous. He didn't have any thoughts around it because he actually hasn't been told that. I could have told him, oh, I won't do that because that's what girls do. But of course I didn't. This level of hate or distaste or mistrust or misunderstanding is is something that is learned. It's not something that's innate. Children don't innate decide that it's bad to be gay or bad to paint your nails. It's something that a parent who's afraid tells their kid. And I I didn't surround myself with people like that. I was completely shocked. I, what I was very gracious and grateful for is just the level of support that I got. It was massive, so much so that Fox took it down off of their website. Oh, wow. It's interesting. I have these moments now where I look back on things from my childhood. For instance, I, was, I played with Barbies all growing up. I didn't have what would be considered like progressive parents today. I just had parents that saw that I had an interest in Barbies and were like, let's get the kid Barbies. And I have a respect for my parents now that I didn't recognize until recently because I didn't see it as being a defiant act. But in the world we're living in today, as you articulated, as sort of stepping backwards, suddenly something like that, I'm like, wow, I'm grateful that my parents didn't withhold something like Barbies for me and force me to play with, you know, G.I. Joe. I mean, there's there's so much that it's just, it's all fear. You know, it's just parents being afraid of their kid being different somehow. And, like, I can understand, like, no parent wants their child to be ostracized or be separated. And I, I understand the fear. It's not like I don't blame someone for being afraid. Society makes us afraid. It's such a negative effect on so many kids. And honestly, I think for the person who's afraid, it's like, you don't have to be, <laughs> like, we're, we're doing great. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, you've spoken about this a lot, and I don't want to, like, rehash too much, but this idea of, like, having to have being outed um, in the media, and this is obviously something that was brought up on The Real Housewives of New York, and I'm glad it was, because as awful as an experience it was for you, I think it's important for people to understand how much the world has changed today, but unfortunately, you had to be a victim of the world before it changed, and that's not to call you a victim. I don't know how much it's changed. What has changed? Yeah, well, there are more out people in leadership positions but does that necessarily create I think, acceptance i think what i do think that the only challenge with that is i think it's now that it's now undercover i think that there is a much bigger wave of pushing against it when mm-hmm. i think about the sort of the backlash in across the board to lgbtq people in our country i it's so much stronger and i think it's because as as the numbers grow the fear becomes more real and becomes you know in your in your backyard as opposed to over there somewhere else i felt honestly safer years ago than I do now. Wow. When these stories would come out or something, were you able to say, this is homophobia versus misogyny? Or I know there's obviously overlap, but I feel like if you were a man, a gay man in the industry, you would not have faced the same level of scrutiny. There has to be, I think that's because of misogyny. Well, I don't know if I agree with that. I think that the thing that was interesting for people about me at the time was that I had been married to a man. I worked for a very American brand. There was this idea of traditionalism around this brand and the fact that I, as one of the leaders of that brand, had chosen a lifestyle that didn't fit into this archetype of family was interesting. And so I don't necessarily think it was male versus female. I I think it was more connected to just what the expectations of me were. The only part of me that was treated poorly was the fact that somebody decided they wanted to out me. The press around it and the support that I got from the team inside at my office and everyone around me was, was wonderful. I was completely blown away. I thought for sure it would be harmful and people would be upset and it it just didn't happen. Mm. 
A 2013 Fast Company profile reads, quote, not since Steve Jobs and Jonathan Ive at Apple has a creative pairing been as intriguing and fruitful as that of Mickey Drexler and Jenna Lyons. Drexler was, at the time, chairman and CEO of the company. I'm wondering how would you describe your relationship with Mickey today? I am so incredibly grateful, and I think it's probably, it was one of the best relationships I, I will ever have had in my entire life. I think that there is, I had never been in a situation where someone gave me chances and trusted me the way that Mickey did. And I am so grateful. He pushed me to do things that I didn't think I could do. He believed in me in ways that I didn't believe in myself. Um, and he lifted me up and also put me in a position that I think really changed the way the company felt the mood. Because when you put somebody who has a creative background in a very senior role at a company, it says a lot to the external team and the internal team. And so you had people coming in from the outside, realizing that design and creative was king. And and I think the reason that they related that to, to Steve Jobs is because he as well really harnessed and and supported design and creativity as much as he did technology. And that is unusual, and particularly in, you know, the fashion space. I also think it's just so important to have people like Mickey who can look at people like you and see the vision and trust it and push it forward. I feel like that's something I wish there was more of in not just the fashion industry today, but in business in general, is people in Mickey's position being able to seek out creatives and create opportunities. I think he's he was mirroring success that he had had before. He is one of the few men I have seen that builds up and supports and pushes women mm. in a way that doesn't always happen. And he's not threatened by them. He actually brings them in. Mm. And I think that's pretty remarkable. And because he'd had so much success prior at The Gap and had really seen that formula work. And he, you know, he continued with that and he repeated it. And I think it takes vulnerability to do that. You yeah. Know? I want to ask about ego because all these profiles are coming out about you. They're comparing you to the, the, <laughs> the Steve Jobs. You're everywhere. You're on the cover of these things. People want to know what you're wearing, where you live, what you're eating, etc. That was then. This is now as well. It's right. It's happening all over again. And I'm wondering how do you keep some sense of ego or no wait sorry keep the ego. humility yeah humility, that one. yeah i mean i think the best thing that ever happened to me was i got taken down i mean and what i mean by that is you know when i left j crew and just yes i left on my own accord and it was time but the fact of the matter is like a rug really got pulled out from underneath me i no one cared what i was doing all of a sudden i didn't get invited to anything Everything stopped and everyone was disinterested and it was all quiet. And it was really humbling and it made me realize that none of it's real. It, like the people who are your friends are your friends and the people who are around you and no one's looking is what matters. And really grateful that I went through that. Even though it was hard, it, was, it definitely was like a massive ego check. I needed it honestly. And it's I think why I'm not so stuck in, like I don't get so caught up in all the stuff going on now because I'm like, Tomorrow it could be all gone. <laughs> Which I think is a good attitude for many people to adopt in, in life hard, and but, in work. Yeah. But I could only do it if, because of what I went through. In what I know about you, I would I would explain that you are someone that does not take yourself too seriously. Have you always been that way? I try. Well, actually, I don't want to say not take yourself too seriously. It's like you take yourself serious, but like you, I think you know what I mean. Yes, no, and I think that's true. Listen, first of all, I am not carrying cancer. I make clothing. I make eyelashes. Like I interiors I, i'm not doing anything that's changing the world <laughs> um i want to look at like okay so you leave j crew in 2017 
And it was perceived at the time that the company was not doing as well as it had been in its heyday. And it was my understanding that you were sort of seen as accredited with the fact that the company was doing so well, people credited that to you. And so when things weren't going well, I can imagine they were quick to say, that's also on you as well. Um, yeah, did you feel that way? I've said this before and I'll say it again. I got more credit than I deserved for the good and the mm. bad. And that's just the way it goes. I can't, I'm, I was one person. I am very grateful for the influence that I was able to have. If you're asking me if the reason I left was because I was, the company wasn't doing well, that was not. Well, I am curious about that because I know it comes down at the end of the day, it's a business, right? It's like, how much money is it coming in? But was there a time prior to 2017 when you felt that things were, when instead of going up the hill, it was either plateauing or things were going down the hill? I was there for 27 years. So during that time, there, there were massive ups and downs. I mean, there were times when the business was peaking. We were up 25% every year, every year, quarter, over quarter. And then we went public. And then then 2008, the crash happened. And then we came down. And then we had different CEOs. And then we came up. And then we went private and again. again. Like, I had been through so many ups and downs. So I wasn't necessarily feeling like this particular one was all me or anybody else. You know, I... Like I said, I can't be credited for all the good nor the bad. Yeah. I mean, it was a te- it's a team, and I don't hold the key. I am a part of the success for sure, and I, um, and and also I'm a part of they're not doing as well. It's also fashion. It is, you know, the world was changing, and the world has changed. If you looked at the time then, you know, this is when Zara and H and M were coming into the United States for the very first time. Fast fashion was on the rise, and it had never been ex- in existence in the United States up until then. They were they were not, you know, Uniqlo. All three of those brands came in hard. Oh, and Topshop. Love Topshop. I know. Oh, I remember going back to Pittsburgh with my Topshop jeans and being like, I am the coolest kid in store. Now... I would love to know your thoughts on fast fashion because I think it's easy for a lot of people to look at fast fashion and find all of the bad in it. And it's there's certainly that to be seen. But there's a utility to fast fashion that I think doesn't often get recognized, which is that a lot of the fashion that exists, for instance, on Main Street in East Hampton, cannot be afforded by everyday people. And for a lot of people, fast fashion is at a price point and has an accessibility that a lot of other fashion does not. Obviously, we recognize the fact that there's a lot of bad that comes with that limited good where do you situate fast fashion in 2023? It's hard because there's a part of me, I love clothing so much and I love clothing that actually lasts and has meaning. And I, I revere clothing in a way that is a, is a little bit of a different thing. And I understand fast fashion for exactly the reason that you just mentioned. It is really hard. And I can imagine if I was Miu Miu or Prada, you know, I remember walking into Zara and seeing a rack of clothing that literally was what had just come down the runway. I think as a designer, that can be frustrating. But the fact of the matter is, I wore a Miu Miu top on the show. Most people can't afford that. And I understand that. So, like, where where are you going to get it? Like, I do think the only downside of that is it doesn't necessarily have the same level of understanding and respect that I want fashion. To yeah. Have. But I get it. There are some instances, I'm sure, where you've had these pieces for years and years and years. I always used to say... So the like, Altazara coat that I've gotten 8 million questions about I, is, is easily six years old. Yeah. I mean, I always say I have these Prada shoes, these sneakers that I love. They, I think, were like $1,200, which is for a lot of people a really ridiculous price point. I wear them almost every single day, and I have for over two years. So, Do you divide the price for wear? I did that. <laughs> That's interesting. So I far, should. So far, that Mimi shirt has been $318. There you go. And only going to go down, right? Like, yeah, every time I wear it, I'm like, So, to your point, though, I do think there's something to be said about 
the appreciation for these things and the longevity of them because that's I think what gets lost in the sauce of the fast fashion conversation is how quickly it just gets turned over who are the designers today that you look at and you've got your eye on I really do like this um designer called Sakina into what he's doing and I think there's something really beautiful um, I wouldn't wear Issa Arpfen. I'm going to say her name wrong, but I'm actually fascinated by the clothing. Those various sculptural, they're made, I think, often like the blazer cutting. I'm, it's not mm. my thing, but they're incredible. Um, I really like designers that are not even really like obvious designers. Like I love the girls who are doing Matteau. I think that it's a very simple line, but it's really quite beautiful. Mm. Um, and Totem, like Kate, the girl who's doing Kate, even though she won't acknowledge that I exist, but I, I still wear all of her clothes. <laughs> When you say um, something is for you versus not for you, is that something that you feel instinctually and you know right away? Do you ever find yourself not so sure about something and then you grow to discover an affection for it? How do you discover like what is or what is not for you? I mean, after being photographed so many times and you're like, what the hell was I? I mean, what is there are some really bad pictures of me out there where I was like, I don't need to wear. I should not be. Nope. I do not need to wear that. <laughs> like, I don't know who I think I am, but I should not be wearing that. Yeah. I can't do anything, anything ethereal and floaty and flower. What do you make of the fact that so often people consider your offering in the fashion landscape to be like the introduction of high low? I'm down with it. I love it only because I think it is, it kind of cuts the quick uh-huh. in the sense that I personally oftentimes the opposite so if i'm wearing something sparkly then whatever's on the bottom like i don't wear dresses for that reason because i can't push and pull i want that thing that is different so if i'm wearing a men's blazer i might wear like a pearl top underneath or if i'm wearing beautiful trousers and a, you know i might wear something really kind of menzy on top or there's always got to be something that's opposite and that feels right for me so whether it's high low or just opposite like i'm like, yes please all day long When you look at the fashion industry right now, I'm wondering what's something that's exciting you about the future of fashion? When you look at influencer culture, the thing that makes me excited is when I grew up, everything was the same. Mm -hmm. Everybody felt like they had to fit a mold. And while that still exists, and I think, you know, the Kardashians have a very strong foothold on the look and feel of what's happening, you can really self-select. There's all these different people who have different senses of style, and you can find them now. So if you really want to dress... I don't know, like an alien, you can do that. Mm-hmm. If you are like super goth. I mean, I go on, I went on Etsy because I was going on a, on a boat ride and I had to pick something. Like I had to pick something for a Grecian toga party. And like, there's a whole world of like costume. I mean, I wear, I wear latex. Like I'm like, I found some latex designer and I, I mean, I wore that on the Today Show. Like you can do anything. And that to me is so fun. Mm, I love that. What do you make of this world of stylists? Obviously, they've existed for a long time, but I feel like it's become its own ecosystem. And if I may say, on my side of things, which is that, like, someone that covers celebrity culture, I feel like there's a ubiquity amongst a certain set of stylists that end up putting their aesthetic and globbing it onto celebrity. And I miss an era of celebrity, particularly one in the early 90s and mid-90s, when celebrities would step out on red carpets wearing whatever they wanted to wear. What it is today versus what it was when I was coming up in the industry has completely changed. What it used to be was a stylist was somebody who pulled clothes from all different places and then would mix and match and put them together. And you could do it in the magazines. Teen Vogue, the best hands-down styling ever. We would pour over those pages and rip them out where they would take like baseball jackets and Puma sweat socks and pair them with like sequin skirts and dress. It was like, what? It was just incredible. 
then over time, as the brands decided, if a stylist did something with their clothing they didn't like, then they got upset. So what happened was brands just started to say, if you want to pull this Prada item, you have to show it head to toe. If you want to pull this Ralph Lauren thing, you have to show it head to toe. So now all of a sudden you have this well story and it's not mixing all of these things now. It's just a head-to-toe look because they're an advertiser. Yeah. And so that changed, I think, what the stylists are. And that's why when you look at smaller magazines, they still mix it up and have some really cool stories, like that magazine Chaos. So often now, the stylist is really just the liaison between the celebrity and the brand. That is where it is now. And I think it's really the brands that have, have driven that because they wanted to maintain their look and feel, which I get. Your brand, you send something down the runway, you don't want it to be paired with something. I understand. Yes. But it's taken that whole mechanism and that whole industry and changed it. You know what I think really underlines this point is looking at the styling on And Just Like That versus Sex and the City. And this is no disrespect to Molly and Danny on And Just Like That, but I can sense that And Just Like That has some deals with some brands, Valentino, um, and which they have to do these head-to-toe looks. And I think what made... I would kill to have a Valentino head-to-toe look. Absolutely. I want one of those dresses with the long tie and I can't get it. Let's work on that. But I think on the original Sex and the City, I think part of what people loved so much was Pat Field as a stylist and her ability to mix and match. And I think that's something we don't see enough of, and I miss it's it. It's gone. I miss it so much. And that's one of the things that I loved about J. Cruz. We had license to do that, even though it was all our brand. When we pulled in other brands to work with, when we did collaborations, we had an opportunity like a red wing boot or like a lem lem top. And I think even when you look at, you know, the net portes and the matches fashion, it's kind of the same thing. There's not a lot of mixing. I miss it. Okay, my last few questions before I let you go, like housewives related. So on a recent episode of the series, Jessel ordered a martini with tequila. I had such a hard time with this, and I posted about it, and then I had a lot of people being like, oh no, this is a thing. It's a thing, apparently. Oh, sorry, she ordered an espresso martini with tequila. Which makes zero sense to me. I don't understand, like, the flavors. I don't get it. But here's the thing. Let the girl have what she wants. Let her have it. You're right. You're right. You're right. Who am I? Who am I to judge? We don't need to take her down about her drink choice. That's true. We don't need to do that. Um, you were, I don't want to say reluctant to join, but you're not someone that was sort of at the ready, had your hand up in the air being like, I want to be on The Real Housewives. And I think that that's part of the ingredient, which is why you work so well on this show, is there's an air of desperation that is common to modern housewives, and it's something that you do not possess. Tell me, so far, a few months in, what is an unexpected thing that this show has given you outside of a boost in your business, but on a level that's something that you might not have expected that a journey like this could lead you to? I mean, I think the thing that is completely surprising to me is the number of people who are reaching out to me via DM and saying, like, thank you so much for being yourself and being open and honest about all. Like, the fact of the matter is, like, I have a lot of cards that are stacked up between, you know, talking about the genetic disorder, my mother who has Asperger's, my situation of getting outed, all those things. Actually, it sounds like I didn't mean for it to sound like a sob song, but there are a lot of ways that I, people are grateful that are being talked about. And I, if I'd stacked them all up at once, I think I probably would have been like, whoa. I've known who you are for the better part of my life. And as you mentioned before we hopped on air, there are people now that are going to discover you and know you as Jenna Lyons from The Real Housewives, which I think you and I both find kind of hilarious. What is that like for you to recognize that there are people that are, that's their entry point to Jenna Lyons? That is a hard one. I'm not going to lie. I really do not want my entire life to be defined around that. I'm going to do my best to make sure that I, I have a bigger life than that. <laughs> Okay, the group scenes on this show, I think, are probably the most 
favorited by a lot of viewers, but also the most unnatural because they're bringing together a lot of people. And, and one of the weird things is these trips, right, that happen um, where adult women have sleepovers, which on the one hand is, is bizarre, but I also, I love a sleepover. I love an adult sleepover. How have you adjusted to doing like the group Not. scene? Like the row adjustment. Like I'm still traumatized. <laughs> oh my god! I I mean, and they were mad at me. I got in trouble. Were you surprised when you had to come back? Because show aside, I like someone like Aaron who like has an issue with a friend. Says you did this thing. It made me feel some type of way. I'm over it. You apologize. The situation was not, and everyone moved on. I just appreciate any time someone can be like, I didn't like when you did this thing okay, I didn't realize that I was even doing a thing. I'm sorry. No big deal. Move forward. I like moments like that. Do moments like that feel, those feel the most authentic to human relationships? Yes. The part that is always weird for me is just the publicity. Like, there's so many people around. If I have a problem with someone, I'm going to pull them aside and be like, hey, when this happened, it didn't feel great for me. Like, can we talk about it? The idea of doing it with an audience is not my favorite. But at the same time, I understand it is a show, and like I knew what I was getting myself into, so I have no, I don't get like a free like get out of jail for. Like, Fair. It was hard. One last question I want to ask you is about the confessionals because I just have so enjoyed you in these confessionals. I've so enjoyed the styling. I enjoy that Genelian sense of humor on display. What was that process like for you? Because I know that that's the most sort of like produced aspect of the show do you listen to yourself on these things and ever have like a total out-of-body experience oh. like who is that person yes well, i was gonna say that's why i don't listen to yeah. it <laughs> it's like i can bear I, like when i especially at the confession i'm like oh and my girlfriend is always like that's your strategic personality that's not you and i'm like really <laughs> it's so it's so hard to be natural it, i try so hard and it is yeah it's a weird thing when you start to you know think about your life in 15 20 25 years where do you want to be doing at that point? Because I feel like life is your oyster. Where I'd like to be in 12, 15 years is gardening. Maybe just really like that. <laughs> I'd like to eat everything. <laughs> I don't know. Just definitely not like not in the grind. I I'm, hear you. I'm going to just like chill. Okay. So then what my want for you might be, might not be completely aligned with this, but is there ever a world in which we would see a Jenna Lyons clothing line? hell to the no (laughs) hell to the no the only thing I might do which I went on The View and Whippy Goldberg was really sweet to me and she's like you should have your own show and I was like oh okay what about you like on something View like where it's like you amongst a panel or do you want totally that would be fun yeah I'm all game but the problem is I don't do well in groups (laughs) I'm much better on my own I know it's weird I I love this about you. This is so you. It's like, I don't do on groups, so I'm joining an ensemble show. (laughs) (laughs) No, in retrospect, I'm like, I really thought I could handle it. I thought I would be cool. I thought I was going to be fine. And I just really struggled. But I think the lack of strategizing is ultimately what makes you so endearing because of how many people come on very calculated. You can't strategize that shit. You cannot strategize. Anyone can say they do or they want to or they will, and you just can't. The cameras are rolling and you've been on camera for 10 hours your strategy goes away. Yeah. I don't know how much you know about this, but I feel like in season three of Roni, famously, Jill strategized before cameras went up and tried to ice Bethany out and went to the other women and said, we will not, I do not want you filming with her. She was envious about Bethany getting the spinoff and whatnot. And to your point, that strategy backfired because Bethany became Bethany. I feel like they need to whisper because of course we walk in with her walking. <laughs> yeah. None of that stuff wins. Yeah. 
It just doesn't work. No. The ultimate formula is being yourself, but it's really difficult to be oneself when the person doesn't know who they are. Well, and the other problem is, and this is the thing that I think is really important, is the fact of the matter is, if it was just me on the show, the show would be boring AF. Like, we need Bryn and Uba and Jessel and Aaron because, and Sai because those girls are funny and they're boisterous and they're out and loud and proud. And I'm like a little shy. I... I know that there's a dynamic that works and people may say, oh, I like having you on the show, but the fact of the matter, and sometimes they're like, oh, I don't like, but so-and-so did this. And how do you deal with that? I'm like, because they actually make the show. It's not me. Yeah. So like, leave them alone. They're my girls. Like, back off. Well said. Tell me about the cars too. Oh, well, we are curious about the cars. Oh, sure. Well, because you've got a Subaru. (laughs) Okay, that's my girl. That's your girlfriend. But so we can talk about it. (laughs) We can talk about it. Well, wait, wait. When you started dating your girlfriend... And she showed up in the Subaru. What was your first thought? Oh. I just love it. I'm obsessed with it. Well, first of all, it's the best and easiest car to drive. My son has been using it to, to learn how to drive because it is, Oh, it's the smoothest, easiest ride you will ever have in your life. And it has none of the bells and whistles. Like you actually have to know how to back up. I don't even know how to back up anymore because I use those stupid cameras and I'm just like, what? it's really, I love it. And it's also like, you get a lot of street cred. <laughs> That's important. Yeah. That's and important. The other car, the Mercedes is, I bought it. I went to... With my ex-husband, I've had that car for, you know, since before Beckett was born, so like 18 years. And I went to a muscle car show, and every single car for sale was a muscle car. And this little Mercedes was under a tree with a very reasonable price tag on it, and nobody wanted it. And I fell in love, and I bought the car. It had one owner, a man who had taken care of it its entire life, and he had a partner who wasn't man, and they were in a theater, and this boy who was his partner couldn't take care of the car, didn't want the car. It had every single receipt and every single note that had been taken. It has all, everything is original, steering wheel, the seat, everything. It's my baby. I feel like I'm going to be in the lookout for that car and you in it. Do you know that it's still in storage? I have not been able to get it out because I need someone to drive it with me. My son just got his permit and he can't drive yet. Okay, well, I volunteer. Oh, come with me. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Please. Oh my God. Oh, perfect. Okay, so let's talk lashes because, so, okay, give me the timeline here. So you leave J. Crew in 2017. When did you have the first idea of the lash line and then how long to get it to market? So I, when I left J. Crew, I ended up, one of the first things I ended up doing, shockingly, was doing another TV show. Yeah. And that is shocking. I know. And in doing that, originally it was going to have a um, a business alongside of it, sort of a, a marketplace, but the Challenge, we were very challenged because it was being backed by the network. The network had never really done that before. We couldn't really get it off the ground. Then COVID hit and it was like we, we tabled it. Uh, but during that time, I had been introduced to these partners who are my current partners named Magnet. Um, and they were helping with the business plan for the television show. Cut to, they're like, what else do you want to do? And I'm like, well, I'm kind of obsessed with eyelashes. And they were like, excuse me. <laughs> and I um, don't have any of my own. Like I have, literally have zero eyelashes. And so I think... Anytime you don't have something yourself, you notice it in other people. And I noticed all of the women at J. Crew were getting mm. eyelash extensions. And I couldn't do that. And then I had been on Oprah's show years ago, and Troy Olivieri, who was my makeup artist that was with me, he's like, get in that chair. He tries to put eyelashes on me, and we've got foot extensions. And we have to cut them apart. And they're just, everything was so huge and crazy. And there was just never anything that really worked for me. All the red carpet nights, anytime I wanted eyelashes... Nothing worked. We, everything was overblown. And I was like, there's got to be something in between. Like, why is there eyelash extensions and then eyelashes that are huge? And so, yeah, 
that was sort of the impetus for a love scene. There's two things great about this, right? One, it's a problem solved for something that you've experienced. So you have a personal connection to it. And then it's also something that, you know, they always say if you're creating a new business, it's like, are you solving a problem that exists? And it's like, yes, you are. It's something that's not on the market, but it also has a personal connection as to why you are the one that created it. I think that's how I ended up, you know, making clothing for that very same reason. Like I was trying to solve a problem for myself. And when I did, I was like, I, I felt better. And when I actually started to make these lashes and we started to construct them, I, like I put them on and I'm like, I feel so like myself, but brighter. Where can people get them? Target and lovescene.com. There you go. Jenna, it's a pleasure. I love our little funny little friendship where it's so funny that like, I'm asked to go on this lunch and give you advice. And I said to our mutual friend, Charles, I'm like, first of all, Jenna Lyons does not need advice in life, especially from someone like me. But how sweet you are that we're sitting at this lunch and you're like asking me these questions as though I have anything to offer you that you don't already know. But that's so not true. I don't know everything. True. I'm also in a world like the world is changing. And I remember really distinctly Mickey... One of the things that Mickey taught me is he never had a conversation about anything without having multiple age groups in the room. And the fact of the matter is, like, the world is changing constantly. And I am 55 years old. I don't have my finger on the pulse of what's happening in your world and in your life and your age group, nor someone who's, like, 25. Like, I need to ask questions. I need to be curious or I'll die. Well, I have to say, I really appreciate the fact that while we were sitting at that lunch, you were so sincerely wanting like feedback and and so i was happy to provide it my only thing was i'm just like my feeling was that no matter what you do it will be right but i can understand what you're saying here which is just like curiosity wanting different perspectives all right thank you shut up evan shut up evan and can i get one as janice from girls (laughs) evan if i hear one more peep out of you you're done shut up Shut Up Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support. And thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.